So, welcome back. Now we are nearly where we left off this morning. What do we do next? Um, I think I want to spend a little bit of time uh, on chapter 2 and chapter 3 and 4. Five is pretty good. So let me let me give a, a uh, an introduction to what uh, chapter two, and we'll see where that goes, and maybe we'll do a chapter three and where that goes. But for those of you who are wondering, the uh, chapter seven will be done will be done late in the day. So we end at 4.30, I think, today. So maybe if we haven't got to it by 4 o'clock, we'll definitely stop at 4 and we'll, uh, because there's a, this is a teaching that you won't get at retreat, whoever was here asking about. Two minutes huh? That's two minutes Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, So the chapter um, two is on the purification of mind. As you may recall, the Buddha did say, the mind by nature is radiant and pure. The mind by nature is radiant and pure. It is shining. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. So what the Buddha is saying in that um, little pithy thing is that whatever suffering we have experienced uh, or whatever form of suffering our suffering has taken, it has been caused by a force that visits the mind. It's not inherent it's not who you are. It's not how it is. It is a result of this visiting force. So the question has to arise in our mind. Well, what are these visiting forces and why do they arise? Because if we don't recognize the visiting forces, we will suffer and not know why. If we don't know how these visiting forces arise, we won't be able to do anything about them. So when the Buddha says these visiting forces are the source or the cause of our suffering, what are these visiting forces? Can we name, can we name them? Do I have some suggestions from the floor? Jealousy. Yes, that is definitely a a force that causes suffering. Anger Anger is another really obvious force. Remember these. I'm going to do a survey. (laughs) Jealousy, anger, envy. Envy? Who, Who said envy? Yes. I'm a little bit confused between the difference between envy and jealousy. Or I should say, many people seem to be confused between envy and jealousy. What is envy? Or what do you mean by envy? Envy, the person has something that I desire. The person has something that you desire. Okay. And jealousy is... Jealousy, if you're jealous of someone or something, how would that be different? Well, no, I don't know how to make... It's on. I don't know how to make that distinction, but I don't know what the word means, but jealous the person is, well... The person is a certain way? 
Hmm. And you're jealous. You're you're jealous of the way they are. In some ways, yes. They have they have qualities. Because what? They have qualities. They have qualities. Right. That you. That I admire and would like for myself. Hmm. Okay. Now, does anybody else have a a clear distinction between jealous and jealousy and envy in their mind that they could share with us to further enlighten us? Okay, please get the microphone over there. Wait, please get the microphone over there. Uh, when I think of envy is... When you uh, think of what? Envy? Uh, if I think of envy, mm-hmm. it's... Uh, it doesn't come harm with it. I can envy for someone what they have, and I like to have it. Jealousy, it feels to me, is there is something of harmful coming behind it. Bad intention, wrong intention... Follows it. So when I'm jealous of someone, it's something is following it. Uh-huh. A harsh, something harsh comes okay. with it. Okay, so there's some distinction. Yeah, Tony? The, the, the way I understand the difference, jealousy is about um, uh, wanting exclusive attention from uh, and being, being um, and desiring the attention. Uh-huh. Of someone it has to do with attention and and affection mm-hmm. and and that kind of greed. Whereas envy could be in regard to anything anyone had. Um, you know, I I'm envious of someone's success. I'm envious of the what they've got. But but jealousy is is wanting uh, the exclusive attention. Okay. Uh, that's how I understand. It. Okay. Any other uh, edifying? Uh Views and opinions? Yeah? Here's a, here's a teacher. Oh, no. Yeah? Yeah? This is a, to the bigger question of what are the visiting forces, not a distinction between envy and jealousy. Okay. Um, so are we continuing first with the envy versus jealousy? Let's say, I want to hear about this envy and jealousy thing, because I've got a point to make here. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Um, I think that jealousy has anger in it or resentment. Jealousy has anger and resentment in it. Yeah, whereas envy uh, is more like longing or desire. It's more pure, but jealousy seems to have uh, resentment. Okay, I thank you all for that. Uh, I, I, um, I, I went through this little exercise just to show us how I don't think we really have a very clear idea what the difference between jealousy and envy is. For for most of us, we have some sense of it. But in the Buddhist uh, definitions of things, jealousy comes with attachment, envy comes with aversion. So there's a big difference. Jealousy is a form of attachment, envy is a form of aversion. I'm going to... uh, I'm going to leave that to you to figure out. You know, we could we could we could head off in a whole discussion about that. But just to say that they're both causes of suffering. I think that's pretty clear. And just incidentally, for those of you who'd like to know anything about envy, there's this great book out called Cinderella and Her Sisters. Envy, envy, envying, and the envied. Fantastic exploration of of uh, envying. Anyway, that's on the psychological realm. But nevertheless, it's the cause of suffering. Other forms of suffering, we've got jealousy, anger, and envy. Fear. Fear. Next. Pride. Pride. Next. Greed. Greed or grief? Greed. Love? Lust. Lust. <laughs> you know, your, your mind hears where your mind inclines. Okay. <laughs> Lost. Loss. Got it. Loss, loss, lane, loose, lack. Okay, got it. Lost. Lost. Yeah, that. There we go. <laughs> got that one in there. <laughs> Confusion. Mm. What? Anxiety. Yeah. Going on 
Going against one's moral values. Well, in the Buddhist uh, thingamajig <laughs> list, uh, there is hiri and otapa. Hiri is contravening your own sense of internal right and wrong, and otapa is contravening the community sense of right and wrong. So let's call it um, uh, modesty and shame. Conscience. Modesty and conscience. How's that? Modesty, your own, <laughs> and conscience, like... Pardon? Lack of. Lack of conscience. Lack of modesty. Okay. Lack of modesty. Lack of conscience. Yeah. Other things that cause suffering? Love. Love. This is interesting. Most of us have been in love and had a lot of suffering with it. So uh, I know exactly where you're coming from. However, in the Buddhist list of things... Uh, love, which would be pure love, would be metta, which is a wholesome state of mind, and attachment, which often masquerades as uh, uh, love in our romantic or parental or familial or collegial sense, is more attachment. So certainly attach, love as uh, connected with uh, attachment is certainly, so let's call it, Attached love. Huh? Love with strings. There could could be a possessiveness, yeah? Sloth and torpor. Mm-hmm. We know that's suffering just recently. Mm-hmm. After lunch. Okay. Next. Yeah. Greed, hatred, and delusion. The, the big old standard three. Okay. Ego. Ego conceit. Excess. Excess. Avarice. Avarice. More, more. More is too much of everything is just enough. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) Excess. Sadness. Yeah. Grief. These are the defilements we're talking about. Isn't there like a strict definition? Uh, no, you know, in, in <clears throat> interesting that you bring that up. Of course, there are the familiar five hindrances, which are five kind of broad categories of defilements. Uh, but defilement, uh, gener- uh, broadly speaking, uh, Mahasi Sayadaw says there's more than a thousand have been identified in the text. So... Start making your list. Now, the, now what I want to, you know, we've, we've listed, you know, a couple dozen here. Did you hear any of them that you haven't experienced? We've all experienced jealousy and envy and lust, uh, love with attachment and greed, hatred and excess and sadness and grief. And we've all experienced every one of them. Right? It's just... That's the way it is, isn't it? That, that's the way it is to have, to, to, to experience an untrained mind. It is filled with these defilements. What's wrong with that? I say, what's wrong with that? Because what, what makes us, when, when, when I get entangled in my, you know, defilement of the moment and get all upset and all huffy puffy about something, Either, at, either towards myself, if I'm trying to be a, a good spiritual person, or towards the other person who who's, I can blame for causing me to feel this jealousy, or causing me to feel this anger, or causing me to feel this whatever. What makes it so special to me? Every one of us, it has happened, every one of us has experienced it. It is the, let's say, these defilements are the natural effect of given causes. It's not even personal. What makes it personal is we don't understand the causes. 
when we don't understand the causes and the effect of this anger, this irritation, this whatever arises, we think it's my anger, my jealousy, my fear, my whatever it is. Because we have not. Let me say, let me rephrase that. Because the causes that have given rise to that condition have not been recognized and seen. Therefore, we think it's me, it's mine. If, on the other hand, our attention, the awareness had been so precise, so moment to moment present with things as they unfold, the impersonality of that emotion or that defiled state of mind would have been recognized. You would see that mental state is just the natural had to happen effect of given causes. Now you'd have to look at the causes. And if you look at the causes, if the attention is careful enough to notice the causes of you know what you hear, what you see, what you think, what you feel, that finally ends up in being an angry reaction to something, if you'd seen all that, you would realize that every one of those experiences was also a, an effect of given causes. You begin to see where this is going. Everything we experience is a result of, is an effect of causes. Each of those causes is also an effect of other causes. And if you trace this back far enough, or if you see it as it unfolds, you see how impersonal this all is. The only difference between an untrained mind and a trained mind, or let's say an entangled mind and a liberated mind, is the liberated mind sees it and knows that's what's happening. An untrained mind doesn't and therefore identifies with it. That's the difference. Microphone, please. Is that on? Um, so my own, I sort of realize, you know, a lot of things you hear, 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 and then you have to sort of begin to realize them slowly. So I'm beginning to realize that, you know, I have stupid thoughts and I have horrible thoughts and, you know, defilement thoughts of defilement and I can just watch it and not get attached to it and then I have a lot of peace. But both Upandita's talks and some of the literature I'm reading from the Thai forest tradition like Ajahn Mun and his disciples, they, <laughs> they personalize the defilements not as if they are their own but as if they have their own existence. These bad defilements, if you do not watch for them, they will attack you. So this is done a lot. So it has left me very confused. So if it's just, I don't know if it's just a metaphor for just watching out for them or there is something more going on that I don't understand. I would, uh, you understand the comment? The comment is, you know, in, in, for example, the Thai forest tradition, they talk about the defilements as if they have an, in, an, uh, an existence independent of you. It's like they're, they're like winds that are blowing through the forest. And if you're in the forest, when they come through, they'll attack you. Or they have some kind of inherent existence independent of the mind. Well, I think that's metaphorical more than. And, and for each of us, it's the question is always, how is it being experienced? It can feel, at times, it can feel like a force enters the mind and takes it over. And you, you know, you could, you know, in a, in a, in a, a uh, I don't know what the word is, but uh, a, I don't want to say simplistic, but in a very unsophisticated cultural understanding would be that person is possessed. Yeah. If you want to see somebody who's possessed, Go to a nightclub sometime. <laughs> you know, and you watch people gyrating around and, you know, drinking and talking. And <laughs> they're possessed by, you know, 
greed or attachment or lust or something. Or if you want to, you know, you go to some political rallies where there's something going on and you see people, you know, possessed by anger. Or you can be possessed by, well, to use, to use that kind of language. But what's actually happening is this, this state of mind has arisen in the mind and it is being acted out. When any of these defilements arise in the mind and they are acted out. You know what I mean when I say acted out? When you just express your anger, you just express your jealousy, you just express, you just, you act it out. You speak it, you act it, you physically do what you do. There's very little awareness. Very little awareness of that state of mind. Mostly we're so identified with it, we're just acting it out. But if you say to somebody, do you know you're angry? Yeah, I know I'm angry. They don't know they're angry. They're acting out their anger, but there's no awareness of the anger. They are it. There's not a stepping back. There's not that stepping back that we were talking about this morning. There's not that much understanding that can say, whoa, there's an awareness of anger. It's just an acting out, although in a, a regular, uh, kind of an ordinary sense, we could say, yeah, I know I'm angry. I'm, I'm, really, I'm really pissed off and I'm... I'm going to be, and you know, you shouldn't have said that, and I should do, you know. But that's not really awareness. That that's kind of like a superficial awareness, but it's not a mindful awareness. Yeah. I'm I'm sorry. Um, I didn't ask that properly. Uh, what I meant was, um, my instructions have always been, and I have found it very useful to just wash your defilements and not get very caught up about keeping a mind really, really pure. Yes. Not letting them enter. And really watching them just as soon as they enter, like pounce on them. And whereas Upandita and Ajanman as well seem to say that. So is that something that at later stages you can see them arising and you should really keep them clear? Otherwise, you're really close to freedom, but you will never get there. Are the instructions different for different stages? Yeah, this is, this is a good question. And different teachers are going to answer this differently. Some will say, do whatever you can to keep them out. And don't ever let them in or get rid of them as soon as they get in. And, you know, that kind of warrior, tough, you know, uh, go to battle with them. And that's the language that both Upandita and the, the Thai forest monks use. Go to battle with them and get them out of your mind. Okay. Now, I've got to step back to something we were talking about earlier this morning, the Four Noble Truths. Now, the Four Noble Truths has, as the fourth noble truth, it has the path to the end of suffering. And the path to the end of suffering is, is essentially three trainings. There's a training in sila, or right speech and conduct, which addresses acting out of defilements. If you, if you practice sila, if you practice ethical conduct, you will pay attention to and carefully, hopefully, restrain your speech and your action so that the defilements will not be acted out. Okay? That deals, you know, if you're not saying and doing your defilements, you're not harming others with your defilements. With the defilements that arise in the mind, if you're not speaking them out or acting them out, nobody knows but you what's going on. And that, that would save us a lot of suffering right there. Okay? So that's one level of defilement. But, even if you can restrain your speech and your action, the defilement is still in the mind. It has arisen in the mind, it's there, and your mind can be burning up with this defilement. You're so angry, you want to say, you want to hit, you want to, you're so jealous, or you're so fearful, or you're so whatever it is, and the mind is just burning up, and the body's like, you know, on fire or whatever. There's still a lot of suffering. You're not acting it out, but it is obsessing the mind. So the grossest level of defilement is acting it out. That's called transgressive defilement. When you're not acting it out, but you're still burning up, we call that the obsessive defilement. Okay? Okay. So to address obsessive defilement, where the defilement has arisen in the mind, and what are you going to do about it? That's where the, the instruction that you get from Upandita and the Thai forest tradition of like, get a handle on it. Don't let it, don't let it take over your mind. Really get it, get it, kick, kick it out or, you know, and get really, 
you know, pretty energetic about recognizing this is an obsessed state of mind. It's a defiled state of mind. Don't just kind of laze around with it. Don't just kind of like treat it with kid gloves. You've got to be pretty. Okay. You can develop what is called samadhi. Samadhi is concentration or collectedness of mind. And any practice that collects the mind will temporarily put the defilements aside. Because if your mind, if you send your mind to a single meditative object over and over and over again, like loving kindness. Loving kindness is often offered as an antidote to any form of aversion. Hatred, aversion, impatience, right? And the way it works is, if you keep sending your mind to thoughts of loving kindness, and you just keep... In time, the momentum of the mental energy is so streamlined and so powerful and so just in that groove, in that track, that the defilement of aversion, whether it's hatred or impatience, can't get in. It just can't enter the mind because the intentional energy of the mind is so strong in that direction that there's no room for the defiled state of mind to get a toehold in the mind. That's where that kind of energetic, you know, just keep, you know, keep your mind on metta and you'll never experience aversion. That's true. If you can develop really strong metta, you won't experience aversion. Until you stop. <laughs> and then it all comes flooding back in because nothing's been removed. You've just trained the mind to keep it out. But to remove the tendency towards aversion in the mind, you have to understand aversion. And the way to understand aversion is to experience it with awareness. If you're continuing to practice loving kindness, you're not going to experience aversion with awareness. You're not going to get any aversion. And so there has to be this capacity to when aversion arises, any kind of anger or impatience arises, you have to be able to recognize it. You have to understand, where did this come from? How did I fall into this reaction? What's it doing to my mind? What kind of thoughts are, are generating this kind of mental state? What kind of uh, mental state is generated by these kind of thoughts? What, how does it make you feel? What does it feel like in the body? You need to explore this experience of aversion, however it is, so that you can come to know it. And it is the understanding of aversion which will uproot it from the mind. Not just keep it out of the mind by focusing on loving kindness, but it will actually uproot it from the mind so that, so that the tendency towards aversion doesn't arise. Which would you rather have? A heart full of metta that just is so powerful that no aversion ever gets in? Or a really relaxed mind that understands aversion and never gets caught by it? The first one is the development of samadhi, and the second one is the development of insight. That's the difference. So, in the beginning, we need to develop samadhi. We need to develop collectedness of mind because we are so easily blown away by the defilements. Yeah, let's face it. We're all just kind of slaves to our defilements when we begin practice. You can't do anything about it. The, the habit of defilement in the mind is so strong that we don't recognize them. We're just caught in them. We're acting them out. When we finally find out, when we finally recognize we're acting them out, we can exercise some restraint, but we're still obsessed. And it's like, we really need to develop samadhi. Concentration, collectiveness, to, to kind of get a handle so that we're not just overwhelmed by them. But ultimately, we have to come to understand them. Because it's understanding that it's going to remove the defilement from the mind rather than just temporarily keep it at bay. That's the difference between concentration practice and insight practice. Get the microphone, please. Gives me a chance to relax. Consumed by anger for a person. And then you say you have to understand it. So how would you begin to understand where all of that comes from? Yeah. Good question. 
The answer is... Okay. <laughs> For this, I have to give you a little three-dimensional graphic uh, in instruction, okay? So, here we are. We're just watching our own mind come by. Doom, 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 doom. Moment by moment, a mind comes by. A moment of experience comes by. And one of these moments comes up and it arises in the mind and it's anger, right? So, instead of just kind of like get rid of it or tr trying to hide it or deny it or avoid it or minimize it or pretend that it's not there, we say, hey, what's this? Let me, let me just look at what this anger is. So now, now we know there's the experience of anger being known. So we're not angry now. We've already stepped back and we've, oh, anger is being known. Now, as you continue to watch that thing called anger, you realize, oh, you know, my hands are clenched, my stomach is tight, my throat is dry, you know, I'm having thoughts about how I'd like to damage somebody or something, and I'm remembering all these memories I had of other times that I've been angry, and I have all these thoughts of revenge, and, and all these little, there's all kinds of stuff coming up. We call it anger, but what is anger? It's the experience of all kinds of memories, and plans, and sensations in the body, and feelings in the mind. And as we watch them, we begin to see each of these little pixels. I call them the pixels of anger. Doop, 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 doop. They come into view. And then we see that this thing called anger is just this massive uh, aggregation of memories that we've not accepted. Anger, fear, judgment, people, plans for the future, all kinds of stuff. And we just start to get the exploded view of this psychophysical knot, right? You following me? Yeah, you following me? Okay. Now, to do that, the the, the attention, the uh, the mindful attention, has to be really steady and extremely uh, both continuous and uh, uninvested. Uninvested. You can't be invested in this. You just have to just have to sit back and watch it like you're watching a movie. Just watch your own movie, you know. And in time, you'll begin to see the relationship between all those memories, all those fears, all those sensations in the body and thoughts in the mind and all and you'll see the whole package. Then when you stop being mindful, you stop paying such close attention, of course it all kind of goes back together a little bit and you get a little bit identified with it. But it's easy to kind of see it again. It's like whoops, open it back up not get identified with it. You see it as just the pixels that it is. You know, and when you're not paying careful attention, it kind of congeals a little bit and you, you feel like an angry person again or you get provoked by some old trigger, you know, and it kind of, you get caught in it again. But in time, you get to where, or you can see that not coming. As soon as, soon as you start to see any of those pixels, huh, you know, I, if, I, if, 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 if there's not care and attention paid here, there's going to be... Uh, Anger down the line. Anger will be the result if you don't pay attention. So then you start to understand how you get caught. How you get caught in anger. You begin to see the pattern. You, you, you see your own little roadmap to anger. And as soon as you step on that map, step on that path to anger, you say, whoa, I know where this is going. Been there before. Been there, done that. Not going down that road anymore. And, and by paying attention, you realize you don't have to go down that path. If you're not paying attention, you won't recognize it until you're in a full-blown anger state of mind. You set an intention. The intention is only to be present with the way things are in that moment. If you see things as they are in that moment, then you won't be uh, blindly following conditioning into the great abyss of a defiled state of mind. <coughs> is that is that anybody else's experience? <laughs> That's my experience. That's how I see it. That's how I've experienced uncovering and being with and learning about these defilements. Because as you... It, they're all very personal. Each one of us has our own personal matrix of things that you know, hook us, uh, our triggers, if you will, in psychological terms, our triggers, or uh, in, in Buddhist psychological terms, it's our predispositions or our underlying tendencies. 
we, we all have them. And it's, and it's by paying attention, we begin to discover our own default setting, if you will, and change it. Move your default setting from being reactive, you know, with impatience and anger and confusion to, to set it to, oh, patience and calmness and clarity and understanding. So practice is to uh, remove the default setting of conditioning from the mind. Yeah. Um, am, am I a little naive in the sense of, for example, I used to drive down the road and someone would cut me off and I would be angry. And I, instead, I started to do metta mm-hmm. for whoever it was that did that. Mm. And so now, when someone cuts me off in the road, most of the time, I think, I really feel some compassion for this person because they're in a hurry and they're being maybe reckless. Um, and once in a while, a little flag of anger will come up and I'll catch myself and I'll go, oh, and then I'll think, you know, may this person be safe because, you know, they're driving a little fast. Yeah. Is that um, a different approach as opposed to really looking at the anger and breaking it up and... Yes, or, it is. Okay. Yes, that's a very different approach. What, what I hear you saying you're doing is that you've reconditioned the mind so that now, when someone cuts you off, you have an automatic response of, oh, compassion or, or patience or, or some, there's some level, there's some level of understanding, uh, but there's, there's mostly a, a, you've habituated a different response. Okay? Do you, now, fully understand the arising of aversion in the mind? No. Other things now still piss you off. So, <laughs> so here's, here's, where, here's where insight's going. There are, for example, there are many things, many situations that we could be angry about. We could be angry about getting cut off. We could be angry about this, about that, about... Oh, there's just hundreds of things we can be angry, angry about. Or there's... You know, hundreds of things that we can be fearful of. We can be afraid of snakes, of public speaking. We can be afraid of, you know, doing this or saying that or not having this, not having many things to be afraid of. What insight aims to do is not recondition our relationship, our reactive relationship to each one of those fears or each one of those objects of anger or each one of those objects of desire. Insight aims to understand the very nature of fear. Because if you understand fear, you won't be afraid of anything. It doesn't matter what. You don't have to figure out what you're afraid of because you know fear. And as soon as any fear starts to creep into the mind, you got it. You recognize it because you understand fear. It's not that, oh, okay, I've worked for 10 years. Now I'm not afraid of the dark. Now I've got snakes. Okay, I've been working five years on my fear of snakes. You know, I hope I get it, you know, so I can get on to spiders. Okay, and then, you know, fear of spiders and then, you know... Well, how many lifetimes is that going to take when, in fact, if you really understand fear, you don't have to go through fear of every little thing. But if you understand fear, you'll see it coming in the mind. Then you don't get caught. So it doesn't matter. You see, you see the difference? We're not changing. We're not deep. We're not reconditioning our reactive relationship to the object. We're, we're understanding the very nature of the reactivity. Okay? That's why there's objects arising being known. If you focus on the object, you're going to have a lot of, a lot of relationships to work with. But if you focus on the knowing, ah, then you'll, 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 you'll understand, you'll recognize when knowing stops or gets contaminated with fear, or sloth and torpor or whatever. I'm still not. I'm still not grasping how knowing. Perhaps I don't understand what you mean by knowing fear. How that will defeat it? Uh, there are many things that I'm personally afraid of. But how does knowing fear? What is that really? How would that stop all of them? I'm not, I'm not quite getting that. To use that example, uh, fear is a certain 
kind of um, posture in the mind so that when something comes up that you have a fearful relationship to, it arises, you know, you see the person or the situation arises, and then now the reaction, the conditioning is so so deep and it has happened so many hundreds of thousands of times that we don't even see it coming. You know, it's just that boom, we're afraid. And then we might even recognize what we're afraid of. We're just afraid. And we see what we're afraid of. What we're seeing is the result of a lot of conditioning. Just by seeing the fear is not going to decondition the reaction, the reactivity. Just seeing the fear doesn't decondition it. But it's when you understand the nature of that fear, how that fear got into the mind, how that fear got constellated due to all these other impersonal, external and internal, uh, historical and present conditions. There's many things giving rise, conditions giving rise to this experience of fear. When you understand those conditions, you'll realize it's not me that's afraid. Fear is the natural, I was going to say God-given, but <laughs> the natural intelligent design response to, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, fear is the, the inevitable result of these conditions. If you see the conditions, you don't get to the result. If you don't see the conditions, there's no other result possible. That's just how it is. It's just, and when you understand this about the mind, then you, when you, if you can even believe what it is I'm saying about the mind, it should invite you to just explore with just utter, childlike, abandoned curiosity. Because, hey, it's not personal. It's like, don't take it personal. Just take a look. What, what's going on in this mind? Wow, it's fascinating. Look at this. Like that. You can learn so much when you don't take it personal. If you take it personal, like, oh my God, I just had that kind of thought. What a shameful thought. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, I'm so afraid. I better not. If we get caught and we get identified with what we see in the mind, well, we're really going to suffer. Right? But if you can really get it that, you know what? This is just an unfolding process of this is in the very nature of things. It's like this. You know, if I took a ball and with superhuman strength, was able to toss this ball in the air so far that, you know, the afternoon would go on and we'd be talking and then at about 4.20, the ball falls back down. We might think, where'd that ball come from? We think it just happened, just like, oh my God, it just happened for no apparent reason. Actually, it fell because of the law of gravity, right? What we forgot is the cause that produced that effect. The cause, one of the causes that produced that effect was having thrown the ball in the air in the first place. Then we got distracted and we forgot about it. We got into another discussion, you know, and two hours later, another condition, the law of gravity, finally exerts its force and brings the ball back down. And we think it's accidental or we think it's unexplained or we think it's, you know, outside of our control. We forget that we're the ones who threw the ball in the air in the first place. We got distracted. This is going on in our mind all the time. We are continually planting seeds of suffering through delusion, through, through the defilements. The defilements are just running rampant in our minds and we don't even notice them. And so we're planting seeds of all kinds of suffering. Then when we suffer, we think, hey, why me? <laughs> having forgotten that we planted the seeds for this suffering ourselves, because we were angry and we were, you know, desirous and we were jealous and we were attached and we were lusting after something and, and we finally got it and it ended up being a disappointment. Yeah, well, what do you expect? That's the very nature, you know, defilements cause suffering. Okay, let's not go too far on that one. <coughs> Shall we, uh, oh, yeah. I think I understood what you're saying. Okay. Um, the you can trace it back to 
you know, where did the, where did, what did I do? What did I, what choice did I make mm-hmm. sometime back yes. in, you know, 2000 BC? Or, you know. How about yesterday? Yeah, yesterday that, that led to this. So that's, that's one aspect of it that, yeah, I can do that. But there's also um, something that I thought of when you were, which just came up. That some some teachers I've heard say it's not you know what's arising in my mind it's not personal that way but it's also what's arising in the mind as in this is a characteristic of like all minds not just this particular mind but also this like impersonal mind which is more global than that and I don't know if I'm getting too out there in the ether or not but that's you know, it's beyond my understanding. Uh, I have also heard uh, people use the language of the mind. And I think you can use that in two ways. One is the mind, the impersonal mind that is being experienced in this moment. It's just like it's doing its thing. And I think that that is an accurate, uh, that, that aligns with the teachings of the Buddha in the sense that yeah, there is this anatta, non-self characteristic, non, uh, you know, the, the impersonal, non-self characteristic of the mind. And in that sense, to refer to it as the mind is, I, I, I would say that that's a fairly accurate way of, according to the Buddhist understanding. But to refer to the mind, like there's some big collective amorphous mind out there that all of us are contributing to or that all of us are influenced by or something like that. That's wrong view. Wrong view is also defilement. Wrong view is wrong understanding. You know, that is a, an, a misunderstanding that the Buddha spoke uh, about extensively. Uh, during his lifetime. It still has uh, credibility in the world today and people are still putting it out as, you know, but that, I mean, and I, let me, let me soften my critique a little bit. Uh, I haven't really gone into depth to really understand or have to, to really investigate what it is they mean by the mind. But how I've heard it and how, what it appears to be is wrong view. So, you know, I, I would have to, you know, they may be referring to an experience behind those words, the mind, the collective mind, the whatever, the big mind or something, that is different than it sounds like, but from the way I've heard it talked about, I don't think that's the Buddha's view. Can you explain that further? Oh, wait, wait. Oh. Ah, why, why do I think that's the wrong view? And this is my, my interpretation. Thing. Uh, let's say it's not my experience. Is it yours? Okay, so when I... And, and this is just a, this is a question. Yeah, we can say, uh, you know, if, if, if you're in a room, if you're in a room with somebody who's really angry and really putting it out, you know, they're definitely going to have an impact on your mind. And so there is kind of a connectivity between minds. That's true. But there being an, an impersonal big mind out there that is kind of we're all contributing to or receiving from. Don't think so. Not my experience. That sounds a lot like God. Or kind of like the omnipotent or something like that. And Yeah, I, I agree. That's why I, I softened it a little bit and said, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what they're talking about, but the way I've heard it used kind of generally seems to seems to imply something like that. On the other hand, you know, just to throw out a little hook, you know, the mind is not limited to the body. You know, and, and what, 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 you know, 
the mind that's sitting right here in this chair, so to speak, can know experience elsewhere far beyond this room. But it's through the development of mind, through the development of, of, uh, of one's mental power or mental capacities to use uh, Deepama, the, the most current. And, you know Deepama? You've heard of Deepama. Any of you heard of Deepama? Deepama is, a, Deepama is a, an Indian woman who practiced with Anagarika Manindra and was an extraordinary yogi, just extraordinary yogi who had tremendous capacity to collect the mind and to develop the power of the mind. And she had both a very concentrated mind and a very insightful mind, a very liberated mind. And she could do things with her mind that are beyond scientific understanding. You know, like she could, when she, when she wanted to go to her interview with Manindra to, to tell him about her practice, she would just walk through the walls. Didn't have to bother to open the door. She would just go through the walls. Or when she wanted to go to the university to go to attend her classes, she would just dematerialize here and rematerialize there. Or when Menindra told her to stop doing that, she said, okay. So she would just tune in to hear what was being said in the classroom. Well, most of us, you know, this is pretty far out. <laughs> I mean, most of us would say... I don't know, this is pretty out there. It's just a capacity of mind. It's just, it's, it's in the nature of the mind. The mind has that capacity. But most of us have not realized it. Most of us have not developed the mind to be able to uh, confirm that that's possible with the mind. It doesn't mean that her mind has become somebody else's mind. It doesn't mean that we can access her mind because of her capacity. It means that she has developed and trained her mind to have this capacity, and she can do that. So, and so can we. I mean, it is in the nature of the mind to be able to do that. But each one of us would have to go through the, the practice in order to, to know how to do that and to confirm that it can be done, that that is a capacity of mind. <clears throat> it's possible. Deepa Ma, D-I-P-A-M-A. There's a book out about her. Amy Schmidt wrote a book, a collected stories about her. Deepama, I think it's uh, The Life of Deepama. Knee Deep in Grace. Knee Deep in Grace was the first version. I think there's a second edition out called just Deepama, I think, maybe. Something like that. So, um, you said, you know, anger arises. You can have, you can keep it at bay by doing loving kindness, but to really eradicate it forever, you really have to understand it. To understand it, you have to look at the body, what's happening in the body, what's happening in the mind in a detached way. But it still, the way you explained it, seemed almost as if you're going to get rid of defilements one at a time, and there are a thousand of them or more. And what I have understood it said by other teachers is that you just look at defilements, you look at mind, you look at pure thoughts, and you get insights such that the delusion goes and a bunch of defilements go at a time. And there being four stages or more. Uh, which one is correct? Uh, my experience is that as you pay attention, there will be times when you'll just, you know, you'll basically, you'll just use energy to cut it off and stay in the present. There'll be other times when you'll just have the energy or the interest and the curiosity to investigate and to come to understand. And over the course of practice, you'll do both of those and everything in between many, many thousands of times. In the end, if you have, if you are trying to develop insight and not just tranquility, you will come to understand them. It is through understanding them that you can, uh, you will see, you will have the opportunity, let's say, to uproot them from the mind. I'm going to talk about that, uprooting them from the mind, when we get to chapter 7. But and that's en masse? No. <laughs> well, if you're, if you're talking about the moment of uprooting, in the, for those of you who 
care to know. In the Theravada tradition, there are four stages of awakening, uh, three of which there are uprootings from the mind. At first stage, there is the uprooting of... Uh, remind me. <laughs> there's the uprooting of a, sense of a belief in self. Uh, there's the uprooting of doubt about the right path. And there's an uprooting of the attachment to rites and rituals as a vehicle for awakening. Okay? In the third stage, in the second stage, there's just a lessening of some defilements. There's not an uprooting. But in the third stage, there's an uprooting of uh, sensual desire, all forms of aversion. And I guess that's it. Huh? And then in the fourth stage, there's the uprooting of sloth and torpor, ignorance, pride, and no, personality view goes in the first. No, first stage. Uh, ignorance. Yeah. So, yeah. So at first stage, we might say, oh, there's the uprooting of two or three different defilements. But it's in that moment that they're uprooted. But believe me, before you get to that, that moment of the uprooting, you have seen all of them plenty. It's, it's not because it's magical. You're just practicing and magically whew, you stumble upon whew, first stage of enlightenment. It's because you've developed the path and the, the moment of uprooting is the natural effect of having fulfilled the causes. And the causes are the awareness and the understanding. Yeah. <coughs> so... While there may be a simultaneous uprooting, there is individual moments of experiencing and growing and understanding about them uh, while developing the path to that stage of awakening. I'm glad we're talking about uh, stages of uh, enlightenment and awakening and the experiencing of the unconditioned in Nibbana because, you know what? That's what the Buddha taught. And if your teacher isn't teaching about enlightenment or using some other word for the same thing, you ought to ask them about it. This is going online? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Buddha was not afraid to talk about, this is, the, this is the goal. This is the goal. It's not just about, you know, kind of like feeling comfortable with yourself. It's not just about learning how to manage your stressful conditions. All these things also happen. It's true along the way. But let's not stop halfway. Let's not just get kind of good at handling stressful conditions where we can be chilled out all the time. Let's not, let's not get just caught in being tranquil and peaceful. You know, let's not just get caught in, uh, you know, all the spiritual goodies, as Upandita calls them, spiritual goodies, the spiritual bennies, you know. There's, there's, you know, energizing goodies and there's tranquilizing goodies and there's, you know, all kinds of bright goodies, spiritual goodies. They come. You know, you can't, if you, if you practice, you'll definitely have all these, you know, phantasmagorical things that you can read about when you read the lives of the saints, whether it's Christian tradition or Hindu tradition or Buddhist tradition. There's all kinds of fantastic things that can happen, but they're just traps. They're just kind of scenic turnouts on the journey. Don't get caught there. The goal is liberation from the defilements. And it's possible. Okay. Yeah. Um, I heard a talk by Ajahn Amaro, who's from the Thai forest tradition, mm -hmm. Ajahn Samedo and Ajahn Chop. And he was referencing, they had been discussing, I guess, at their monastery in Northern California about um, entering the stream. Mm. And he, this was, it was almost, he spoke of this as, you know, and he was referencing it in, in terms of enlightenment uh, and talking about this because I think his uh, point was we all see his enlightenment as this sort of final fixed stage. And apparently this was in, I don't know what sutta or whatever he was referencing, but there is this point of entering the stream where you maybe not be as fully enlightened as the, obviously the Buddha or other very enlightened teachers, but by entering the stream, you can 
you know, bypass having to come back and do this. So I thought it was kind of like, you know, pass go, you know, on monopoly borders. So I didn't. It was interesting, but I had never heard it references as stages of enlightenment. Is this familiar or not? Yeah. Uh, Ajahn Amaro in the Thai tradition is the, the Thai tradition is also a Theravada tradition. It's not Tibetan or Zen or anything like that. And so very similar. Uh, they, the Burmese tradition of Theravada Buddhism and the Thai tradition of Theravada Buddhism are, come from the same place. They have different practices, and <coughs> well, no, but they have essentially the same understanding, especially when it comes to what's called entering the stream, stages of enlightenment, things like that. <coughs> Excuse me. The, uh, what, what they mean or what they're referring to when they say Entering the stream is attaining first stage of enlightenment. There's still three stages to go. But once you enter the stream with first stage of enlightenment, then you can't be stopped. You will definitely go to the end. But it could take you a few lifetimes. You know. But nevertheless, you have, you have see, clearly seen the path. You have no more doubt about the path. And that would be the direction that your, your mind stream goes. You're still going to suffer a lot. You know, still a lot of suffering because even though you've entered the stream, you still have lots of aversion, lots of sloth and torpor, lots of ignorance, lots of pride. Still, still there. Yeah, so there's still suffering, but there's not the suffering of doubt. There's not the not the suffering of having a belief in a sense of uh, a belief in self, and there's not the suffering that comes with wrong practices, rites and rituals. <coughs>